The Process, a podcast about creativity and making music. In a world where maybe no one is listening, outcomes and accolades for contemporary classical composers can seem far and few between. Therefore, composers must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one composer and their music. By understanding how and why they create can inform inspiring composers and help audiences better understand contemporary classical music. I am Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of new music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. In this episode of The Process, we talk with composer and violinist Robin Cox about the creative cogitations. Let's talk about the creative cogitations. These are not benign. These are not good survey questions, meaning they have agendas. They're not yes yeah. or no either. Yeah. They're not yes or no. And they some of them have an agenda, like the one says, is being creative a primal urge? I've got to believe the answer is yes for those that actually pursue it beyond, say, a weekend hobbyist sort of way or that arrange their lives so that there's room for this at the expense of, you know, a higher standard of living by a different day job or other activities that for some reason, you know, I and others are compelled to do these things when objectively on paper, it doesn't add up much by how we usually in our society uh, quantify uh, values. Uh, It's certainly not in and of itself a very efficient way to make money to be um, to be afforded resources or you know wealth or fame or whatever else so you know I've got to believe it's something pretty intuitive uh, pretty internal that that drives it because there's not the usual um, incentive incentives uh, for for doing it uh, I think it goes to quality of life uh, in other words, would my would my level of contentment and would I be as satisfied with the trajectory of what I do in my life be as high if I simply went and taught classes or even just performed music or was completely divorced from the art form in general? Uh, apparently not. I don't know that someone wakes up as a child one day and says, "I'm going to devote you know a good significant portion of my." Uh, eventual adult life over to writing music, irrespective of whether I'm making a lot of money or it's bringing me a lot of accolades or a high standard of living. So if you become aware of that and you don't have that delusion, you know you don't go into adulthood with those kind of delusions, then why are you doing it? And why do you persist at doing it? So I've done it long enough. I've got to believe that this is sort of innate 
to who I am on a certain level. But I can't tell you I can quantify it beyond that. Um, so does that mean exclusively then that you're not creating for outcomes? If it's a primal urge, are you therefore acting on that urge and not for the outcome? Well, if you have a garden, then you're not directed as to exactly what you're going to put in the garden. You, may, you have choices, and they can be creative on a certain level. I think to be creative, it's helpful to have a vehicle by which to express it. I think part of the interest in it is the challenge of meeting the outcome that's before you or the, the, the project goal and how do you create to satisfy the challenge of that, I think is part of the basic interest in it. So you mentioned that a lot of times you're not really inspired, but the, the idea of a deadline will help you finish a particular project or piece. You know, even just you mentioned the creation of start, you know, I almost feel it, it rolled off the tongue almost saying, uh, well, I need something for the start of, of, the, of the set, <laughs> yeah. you know. Are deadlines, is that different than outcomes? Not much. I mean, in other words, as you were saying that, I was thinking that's that's a challenge in and of itself, and that's a limiter that causes you to have to create um, solutions. Uh, so, no, I don't think it is. A deadline also has added further benefits where you get over yourself. You can get caught up in this God complex that <clears throat> you're going to create the most profound piece of music imaginable, or this is the one. I'm, you know, if I'm doing my best, then I'm, my goal is to create the greatest piece of music I'm ever going to be capable of. That's a great way to shut yourself down and intimidate yourself out of actually doing something interesting. So the deadline says kind of, ah, screw it. Okay, I can't do everything I could possibly do, so I'll just do something. And then perhaps it's actually useful in a sort of a strangely dysfunctional way to actually get you to do something more interesting than had you thought that you had all the weight of all the gods upon your shoulders mm -hmm. to actually um, do right by the world. Well, it's sort of like the Brahms effect where for his first symphony, taking so long. He's, what, to, 42? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, and, and just being maybe crippled by, well, how is this going to sit in the canon of what came before me and after me? And, uh, yeah. I mean, what would Brahms have been had Beethoven not been before yeah. him? Yeah. I mean, obviously on a superficial, that's a superficial question. It's kind of silly because that's not sure. possible to really imagine. But at the same yeah. time, that the... Um, it's hard to imagine someone with the capacities and the impact of Brahms actually being intimidated out of doing something sure. because of his <laughs> forebearers. Yeah. Uh, but it's there. And I think anybody that tells you that they don't feel that is probably not being fully candid with you, no matter who they are. Mm
I get rather self-conscious with the idea of creating concert music and concert works. It's sort of this self-contained preciousness to them and uh, meant for highly rarefied circumstances feels a bit disconnected from realities of today's culture. I feel a little funny about uh, working with that paradigm before me. Uh, One thing I discovered past my formal studies was how much I enjoy working in collaborative circumstances. Uh, I've done a lot of work with dancers, but also folks of other mediums. I think the act of collaboration of itself is interesting. And again, it goes back to that whole God complex thing is in a way you kind of have to give up on that because you're releasing a certain degree of control, which actually encourages a certain degree of freedom to be creative, I think. Um, But I enjoy the challenge of somebody else's artistic vision. If someone, say a choreographer, says, this is what I'm doing, can you help me realize that goal through through the sound medium? I, I find that interesting to actually not be in the lead, so to speak, but, but be to working to somebody else's um, uh, vision, vision for work. Uh, I wish I'd actually realized that earlier. I would have pursued more of that within my student years where it's easier to sort of be messy about uh, things. Uh, but nothing uh, enthralls me more than having someone bring an idea to me that actually involves a medium that is not my own primary medium. Well, that's sort of related to 2.5, which is how are people related to your creativity? Um, There's this idea of a composer who locks himself, uh, him or herself in this, you know, dark room and, you know, for months on end composes, and then they emerge with this masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's, so then the other end of the spectrum is you're just jamming. You know, like I, I, right. I, we meet up and we jam, and that's that's the piece. Well, the, so where do you lie in that in that spectrum? Yeah, well, to back up slightly, a, a book I read a good twenty years ago by Howard Gardner called "Creating Minds" um, was uh, really influential on me in that he looked at I think it was either six or eight um, uh, the most seminal members of uh, their uh, various disciplines. Of, of folks in the early 20th century, uh, Picasso, Stravinsky, Sigmund Freud, Einstein, Martha Graham, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, and try to unravel how did they come up with their most um, earth-shaking works? What circumstances were they in when they were doing their most uh, productive output? And it was very clear from all of them, none of them were on that mountaintop. None of them were uh, sequestered away from influences of other. They were all in circumstances where they were getting input and getting challenged by a group of uh, confidants, or at least amongst people that were uh, helping spur them um, in terms of their thought process. They were not off on their own. Um, and I know from within schooling, I would try that. I would try to go to a you know deep dark corner and sit there and stare at staff paper for hours on end, and I just found it stifling. And not that it's not right for some people, but the few times I've visited um, arts colonies, uh, I just uh, just can't imagine uh, that that circumstance for myself. I think I, I would probably do fine, but uh, but all the same, that kind of uh, concentration of effort, uh, I think, would work work against me at, at a certain point. I come and go in and out of the work, and I I and I do appreciate. Uh, the editing process of others being involved. One thing through uh, being around an 
a, a great many modern dance choreographers that I've noticed that I quickly noticed upon starting with those relationships, I was just startled with how much outside input they would have as part of their creative process. How many folks were commenting on the work and how much they were taking in and considering that within the decision-making. And that's relative to the composer model where this singular voice that goes off again to, you know, some sequestered circumstance. So you're talking about feedback directly to their choreography. Yeah. Uh, so what, so they would come up with a particular uh, sequence of moves and who's then giving them feedback on that? Is it well, the dancers? Is it other choreographers? Well, other choreographers, uh, you know, if they have a team, you know, their lighting designer or costumer, uh, but certainly also the dancers. Now, you know, within jazz music, perhaps this is applicable, but for most genres of music, uh, the music is made in advance of the interpreters, the performers actually being a part of what's going on. Whereas in modern dance, often the piece begins at the first rehearsal with the performers present, and there's nothing in advance of that. Uh, so they become much more integral to the actual, um, uh, you know, germinating of, of, of the work. And I think there's a balance point there. I think you can hear too many voices. Uh, it's hard to stay true to your own voice. Sure. But at the same time, I think you can go far too much in the other direction. And, uh, you know, writers have editors. Uh, playwrights have editors. Um, choreographers, you know, drag people in out, out the hallway into the rehearsal and say, "Well, you just look, watch this for a moment." Uh, you know, why are composers so far off on their own without external input until they supposedly hit the final bar? I'm not sure it's entirely healthy. It certainly isn't how I I want to work. Well, you know, that sort of leads into 4.5, which talks about can creators work for both money and at other times for art? And the one of the reasons I bring that up is because you talked about now feedback. So if you're a choreographer or you're not, you're, you're a composer and a, and a violinist and a musician, as you said, um, what happens now if you're not getting feedback from other musicians, but you're getting feedback from clients? You had me until that last word, client. Uh, why didn't Why don't you well, like the word client? I, well, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna answer it differently until that word came in. I was gonna say I tend to prefer feedback from people that are outside professional training of my own medium. Sure. Uh, when you say client, then there's somebody with a particular uh, invested agenda involved, and and that that agenda might be to market your music or to mm -hmm. use it in a film or you know some type of derivative work of that piece. But they're giving you feedback not based on perhaps the artistic merit of it, but, you know, to fit in this podcast, it needs to be 22 minutes to uh, fit at this film. Could you just go ahead and cadence earlier because we need it to arrive right. at this point? 
Well, if it isn't, say, a, as you say, client, then I would assume they don't have a, a, their own a, agenda. They're, they're trying to help me with whatever agenda I've expressed. Mm. But at the same time, I think we can get way too precious about this stuff. And if I've entered into a relationship where I'm creating music in which it's going to go to somebody else's purposes, then I already, then I already made that deal up front. And I don't think there's any reason why they can't weigh in. Uh, I, I, I think that's relationship dependent, though. I think that they'll be smart if they don't weigh in to a degree that they muck it up. Um, so some of it's on them uh, in terms of the appropriate line uh, by which they're going to get the best product or the best output from me. If they weigh in too much, then they're, then they're hurting themselves. But at the same time, I don't, I don't have a problem with I, if I started at the genesis of the work knowing that it's that it's to meet somebody else's needs as well as my own, then, you know, sure. Uh, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for someone else to have a say at that point. Hugh McLeod talks about in his book the cash and sex principle, especially with creative people. So there's the idea that you're doing some projects for cash, for money, and you're doing other projects because they are sexy or they're art. And uh, immediately I was struggling to find an example of this, but he brought up actors, you know, and, and the idea that you'll see an actor in some kind of Emmy or Oscar award winning film where they portray this historical figure and then they're in a cartoon. The next movie you see them in, they're, they're the voiceover in a cartoon. So this idea that even actors are often working within this paradigm where some things they're doing for the art of cinema and other things they're doing for a paycheck. So can creators work for both money at times uh, and other times for art? And have you ever found yourself in that situation where you're like, you know what, I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing this gig for the paycheck, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, we there's, sure, it's put in a historical context. I mean, it's not like our forebears within this or other mediums didn't do a lot of this. Sure, we we tend to put them in this exalted, you know, yeah. Mount Rushmore kind of you know platform in which they were uncompromised. Uh, you know, throughout their artistic lives, and that that, that doesn't hold up. In other words, I, I think a lot of masterworks or a lot of things that are, that are important in the canon of any medium also had a final financial incentive for why they got down or how they got done. So I, I would think uh, the ultimate goal was: can you do both? Mm. I think you can. I think there's plenty of historical precedent for that. Is can you can you um, can you uh, meet your master's expectations while doing your best work at the same time? I think that might be the definition in some realms of the best uh, folks for, for that um, purpose is they are capable of being able to do both at the, same t- at the same time. And, you know, at the end of the day, Bach had to every week had to write so much music, you know, for, for, for the mass. Yeah. He had to, it had to get done. And so, uh, you, there's his deadlines. There's you know and with the, the Brandenburgs, the, I believe the Brandenburg concertos, I believe were audition pieces in which he failed the audition, but he wrote them as audition pieces. I mean, sure. so that's for and those know, are now the, the part of the yeah. masterworks canon. So yeah. so yeah. I, I so I think we get you know we should get over ourselves a bit, and it all gets too precious. And I think we do what we do, and I think every circumstance is compromised by something. There's no perfection or utopian sort of circumstance, even if you're just literally in a room. And you've got staff paper and a piano and no external motivations for why you're going to do something. Something inside your head is going to impose. So there's always an imposition from wherever it's coming from. So, uh, and I think you just try to do your best work 
with the impositions that are always going to be present from some place. Well, like 4.4 suggests, then can a creator really sell out ever? Somebody who's being creative really, quote unquote, sell out? I think it's a spectrum. I think, you know, I, I, I think there's no dishonor in someone, you know, crafting work to somebody else's purposes. You know, as long as one's honest with oneself and honest with, you know, the, the outside world, then, uh, you know, th- there's there's bigger... Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, is that really a crime against humanity? I mean, sure. <laughs> for all the for all the ills of the world, you know, someone yeah. that's writing, you know, a sitcom music should, you know, have something to apologize to society over. I mean, come on. Uh, so, uh, I you know, I don't know what selling out really means on a on a on a on a large scale basis. I mean, for for a particular piece, if someone says they sold out, I, I think what they're saying is they didn't really give it their best effort or they couldn't for whatever reasons, and they still put it out there. Um, okay, well, maybe maybe the money you made off of that allows you the freedom to be able to put more into the next work. So, you know, you're paying it forward. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think there's a singular answer here. Well, does that lead so – Does that is that part of this whole myth about the creative lifestyle and – you know this concept in in two point two. It talks about can you be a star, uh, can you be a starving artist? The idea that you're just you know you're you're not making money, you're not commercially accepted, and you're just this kind of rogue creative person. You know this myth about this this entity of this starving artist, this person who who creates and and mm-hmm. has this primal urge. Um, you know, is that just, is that part of that myth? I think that's, you know, the balance point of someone's values, uh, the balance point within someone's value system. You know, how much do you wish to give over to having a very nice house or a car versus how much do you want to live, in, you know, your life such that you've given over a certain amount of uh, who you are to the artistic production itself? Uh, going back to the beginning of all this, when you were mentioning David Lynch, my favorite quote of his, it, it, upon his success, of um, Twin Peaks, some some interview asked him what it was like to now be feeling so much success. And he was bemoaning it because he said, when you're a failure, you have so much more time to do your work. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that st- statement in full, but I but I understand that when you're a success, what he probably meant by that is you have a lot more impositions coming your way and that you have to screen out a lot more. When when you're not getting accolades, when you're not getting attention, then it's a little easier to understand your circumstances and um, not have to fend off um, all, all the potential for other motivations that may get in the way of that. Uh, yeah, and you know, even David uh, Lynch mentions in his book how to how to catch a big fish, uh, or how to catch the big fish. Uh, he talks about how he, for years, for nine years, he wrote this comic strip, where it was each it was the same picture of this angry dog, and there were captions coming from inside the house, and it was apparently the dog's owners, and each week it would be he would change the caption, but it was the same comic every week for nine years that, and that's a way he, you know, he earned a, a paycheck or some money from doing that. Mm-hmm. But then each week he was, he was, you know, he had to come up with something that would explain why the dog is angry. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that sort of goes into what you mentioned, your quote, uh, the idea of savoring obs- obscurity. 
Um, when I first heard this concept, um, I'm like, well, that's what people say who are uh, obscure, <laughs> you know, is mm-hmm. that you should savor obscurity because of the freedom it affords you. I don't know. Do you think that's uh, what David Lynch was kind of saying? Do you think he was I, saying? It, it did, but but I, I know I had lots of friends in New York that went there to be artistic, and they were spending 60 hours a week waiting tables, and that's 60 hours a week you know, that yeah. you could have been doing something else with. So uh, I, I'm not sure that struggling always, next, you know, the inefficiency of that necessarily lets you take the time to develop as an artist and to do, do, your, do your work. Uh, on the other side of that is, is uh, maybe you don't want to put in many day uh, day job hours because you're not interested in quite as nice a car, a house, or the finer restaurants, and that gives you more hours to devote to your work. So I don't think there's any one solution here in, or, or point of balance uh, for everyone, uh, but there is a point of balance. Um, so I guess that's the spectrum of selling out is how much do you give over to the comforts of life or other pursuits relative to how much are you uh, prioritizing that time and that energy and the resources to the artistic side of things. So one last thing about being creative, what do you think is the most important thing? And it doesn't have to be for other people. This doesn't have to be like a PSA to other people about creativity. But what is the most important aspect of your own creative life that, you know, kind of summing it up that you're grateful for or that you think is a really important part in your ability to be a composer and a creator? Wow. Um, that's an easy, that's a, that's an easy question. Yeah. That's a softball. <laughs> I guess I should be grateful for something, right? That sure. sounds yeah, bad yeah, if I'm yeah, not. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's very hard for those of us that make a living in academia to realize how much free, unstructured time we're afforded. Mm-hmm. And for the fact that I work at a university, and that's where my paycheck comes from, I am afforded a great deal of time that I get to determine for myself, not just in terms of the length of summer or a break over Christmas, but my responsibilities uh, for my job are not wedded to uh, specific times a day a lot of time uh, much of the time or a specific um, structuring which allows me to have those moments where suddenly I have an idea and I can pursue it now uh, it's easy within academia to forget that but relative to other ways that I can put food on the table and I can have shelter over my head I do still think it's a it's in general a uh, a life that affords a great deal of artistic um, freedom. So would you say you're grateful for the time that you have to compose? I'm grateful for the flexibility of time that I get to choose when and where and how. Special thanks to Robin Cox. For more information about Robin or to hear some of his music, go to robincox.com or visit thenoisebuffalo at blogspot.com. Join us next episode when we talk with composer and video artist Michael Drews. <laughs>